If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Romans. We'll soon be reading from chapter 3, verse 21. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, for whatever reason, you can probably find a black Bible somewhere around you in the pew. And if you are able to locate that, you can find Romans 3, verse 21 on page 941 of that Bible. This past week on June 30th, the news came to all far and wide that Bill Cosby's former conviction was overturned on a technicality. Apparently, during a deposition for a different criminal act, he was told by a district attorney that was over his area at the time that he would, if he gave testimony, would not be prosecuted for the testimony that he gave. Later, a different district attorney found that deposition. It was unsealed for him. And he said, whoa, you did a lot of bad stuff, and we should really prosecute you for that. So they did prosecute him for that, and he was found guilty. The state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, apparently, rightly, I'm not a legal scholar, but from everything I've heard, they, they acted correctly here, throughout the conviction, stating that the new district attorney was bound by the old promise, even if it wasn't written down and even if it wasn't passed on to him. We understand, I think, why this is the case. This is the way our households work, let alone the way our courts work. If mom says, listen, I just want to know what happened. I'm not going to hold you responsible. There won't be any punishment. Just tell me. You say, well, I broke the vase playing baseball in the house. And dad comes home and he says, well, that deserves punishment. You rightly say, but mom said no. We know that that would be an unjust thing to do. Cosby is most assuredly guilty. There are very few people who would think anything other than that. He said, basically, under oath, that yes, I did these many illegal things. The prosecution knows that he is guilty. The defense, frankly, knows that he is guilty. The public knows that he is guilty. The jury knows that he is guilty. The court knows that he is guilty. God himself knows that he is guilty, yet... At the same time, he is free to walk on the streets, for the gavel came down from that state supreme court saying that his conviction was thrown out. In this case, he is not guilty before the court, even though that court knows very well that he is guilty. We rightly, I think, see this as a miscarriage of justice, even though we might understand why. We need to have checks in our system because we are sinful. We are fallen. We are unable to determine truth. And sometimes the sinful nature of us ourselves perverts the truth. Therefore, because people are unreliable, we need these checks to power and authority. All the same, though, Cosby's guilty, and he is free. We find that to be an abomination. We find it to be unjust, and yet this is not far, not far from the good news of the promise of the gospel for us. We, too, walk on the streets free in the grace of Christ, even though before God and man, all of us know that we are guilty. As Paul has charged, there is no one who is righteous. Like Cosby, we are guilty before the court. The court knows of our guilt, and yet we stand justified, defined as not guilty before God. Today, we turn a corner in the text of Romans. From the bad news of our incredibly gross unrighteousness before God to the gloriously good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
the good news is that we, of course, essentially go free. That we hear the verdict from God, not guilty. We have been justified in Jesus Christ. We begin today to plumb the goodness of this news and to see the surprising way in which that news comes to us and tells us about God. Let us read then these very important verses in the book of Romans, beginning in verse 21. Paul here writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's inerrant, infallible, and precious word to us. These are six short verses. And although they are just six short verses, Paul has poured them into a pot. He has turned on the heat and he has boiled them down to be an incredibly condensed and very, very difficult and dense understanding of the gospel. Because of that, we are not going to be able to cover all six verses today. We will spend at least two sermons in it. I haven't written my sermon for next week, so I have no idea where we're going to be next week, but we'll, we'll progress. Maybe a third week. We'll see how it goes. And even in that, I'm, I'm going to tell you there is a lot that's left on the cutting room floor, but I think that we have much to gain here. Many people look at these verses not only as the heart of the book of Romans, which they almost assuredly are, but even as the heart of the gospel. I don't know if I would go quite that far, but we would do well to listen and to think through them carefully. The first thing I want to point out to you is then the good of the gospel. What is the good of the gospel? God, it seems, has gotten himself into a bit of a pickle. He has said two things which seem, not just on the first glance, but upon many glances, to be quite contrary, if not contradictory, to one another. You can find this repeatedly throughout the Old Testament in his actions, but the best place to see it is probably in God's own description of who he is in his very nature in the book of Exodus. As he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes before him and speaks his name and tells Moses precisely who he is. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God says this. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Forgiving transgression, letting transgression go, not holding transgression accountable, but will by no means clear the guilty. How do those two things come together? This is not just a part of God's nature, but it's how He acts in reality. Continually, we have placed before us 
these great promises of God. God said, I will, Abraham, I'm going to bless you with all of the blessings of Eden. I'm going to be present with you. I will bless you. The land will be fruitful. The land will be plenty. Your children will be plenty. You will know the blessing of God. But also there's this law. If you sin, you die. This is what has already come up back in verse 3. When Paul says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? He's saying, well, God made promises to us. If, if we were faithless, does that mean that his promises aren't true? And Paul there, the point of that is to say, well, no, if you sin, you die. God isn't faith, faithless to do that. But the question remains, what are the promises? I remember years and years ago when I lived in Oak Ridge, I, I stumbled upon in a coffee shop one day, several engineers from Oak Ridge National Lab were talking about a variety of different things, and this is the only time somebody's ever said this particular thing to me. We started talking about the gospel, and this particular engineer said, you know, I just find the whole thing incredibly unfair. And out of all of the families on the earth, God would pick Abraham's family. He would pick that one nation, that one ethnicity to bless, to pick out over the thousands and thousands of nations and the thousands of people that were spread across the face of the earth. I find that to be unfair. Typical response to something like that is to say, well, we, we don't necessarily want what's fair. We want what's good. Fairness would be our condemnation. Fairness would be our, our removal from the presence of God and from the fatness of the land forever. We don't want what is fair. We want what is good. I don't think that that's necessarily a dichotomy that we really want to press. Does it always work this way? Do we either get fairness and justice or goodness and mercy? Is that how all of this works? For God to be kind to us, does he need to suspend his justice? Do we need to get off on a technicality? Does God need to look the other way? Does he need to kind of bury his head in the sand and say, you know, I, I usually am really, really just. Y'all need to know that. I really want to be just, but in order to pardon you, I've got to like not be just at all. And I'm just going to let you get away with it. Paul begins this particular section by noting that something distinct has happened. Now, he says, but now. But that thing that occurs after the but now is not what we would expect. The switch doesn't sound like what we would have it sound like. It doesn't say, but now you're forgiven. He actually says, but now the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. Paul doesn't mean that the law doesn't showcase God's righteousness. Certainly it does, in a sense. It is an attribute, as we have said, of the unique God whereby he shows himself a kind judge. And certainly in the law, we get the idea that God is a judge. The whole point of the law was that all mouths may be stopped and be held accountable to God, seen as guilty before God. It's very clear that God's righteousness in as a judge is seen in the law. And we would have to say, as we will talk about next week, it's also likewise clear that there is mercy in the law. That there is a sense of grace built into the law. It at least refers to what will come as that. But now, Paul says, the full dimensions of his righteousness are made known. We might not be able to plumb the depths of them, but we see the entirety of them. 
every part. It's not piecemeal. In one act, we see all of the righteousness of God on display. While it was apart from the law, Paul says, it was still witnessed to by the law. The law somehow spoke of it coming. The law and the prophets do this, and they do it emphatically. We've referred to Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30 several times. They are some of the most important verses in the Old Testament, and specifically for how God's plan of salvation works its way out. Moses standing before the people of God as they looked at the promised land and they could see the promised land from where they were, said to them now, in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, you go into that land, you keep God's law. You do the things that he has called you to do. You will not know what to do with all the blessings that are coming to you. The land will be amazingly fruitful. Your cattle will grow fat and have many calves. It will be flowing with milk and honey. Your children will play on the hills. Your enemies will be subdued. I will bless you. But if you do not do what the law requires, then the cursings will come upon you. You will be removed from the land. I will remove myself from you. I will not know you as my people. And my punishment will come down upon you. In in chapter 30, then Moses changed tax and he says, but after these things, he, he doesn't say, But when these things might occur, he knows that both of these things are going to occur. He says, after these things, God will call you back to him, and he will circumcise your hearts, and he will make you love him. Now, Moses is clearly writing before any of that stuff has happened. By the time we get to prophets like Jeremiah, Jeremiah looks at 28 and 29, and he says, this is what's happening at the present time. Ezekiel, already in exile, looks at 28 and 29 and says, that's happened. But both of them look forward to the day when chapter 30 happens, when God calls his people back and begins to make them love him, give them new hearts. That is precisely where Paul says they are. This is the revelation. This is the manifestation of the righteousness of God. God will be true to his word but in promise and in judgment. The law and the prophets witness to this manifestation of God's righteousness, but it's not part and parcel of them. They simply know that it's coming. All of this is to say this. Do not be confused for a brief second, for a minute or an hour of your time. God did not in any way, shape, or form set his justice aside in order to save us. We're not getting off on a technicality. We're not getting off from our guilt, simply because God said, I'm just not going to treat you with justice. I'm not going to be righteous in your case. I'll be righteous in everyone else's, but you're special, and I'm not going to be righteous for you. We see what happened with Bill Cosby, and we think that such is a miscarriage of justice. And especially when we think of his victims, we are rightly angered and outraged that he is not held accountable to what he has done. And yet the very same events that we are guilty and we go free are seen not as things to be angered about, but things to praise God for, are seen not as a miscarriage of justice, but according to Paul, as the upholding and the revealing of the fullness of the righteousness of God. He didn't set it aside. God is not ignoring justice but God is declaring his righteousness through our salvation. 
is pardoning the guilty does not undo his righteousness, but it supports his righteousness. And this is because of point two, the God of the gospel. Let's talk for a brief moment about the God of the gospel. When you move to verse 22, we run into something of a problem. If we were just to read verse 22 straight away, in the ESV, you notice that there's something that doesn't quite feel right about it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That little phrase is a clause, and it needs a verb. The ESV has left out a verb. It has made it incomplete. I think that that's actually the right thing to do. Greek does this all the time. It does it here. There's no verb in this. And typically, when that happens, it's typical in Greek. It's not typical in English. When it happens, we simply supply the verb, which many other translations do. So the CSB 17, the Christian Standard Bible, and even the old King James Version of the Bible add the verb is. And they would say something along the lines of, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. The NIV takes that one step further, and they don't just say is through faith in Jesus Christ. They say is given through faith in Jesus Christ indicating that this righteousness is the gift that is given to you. This is popular. Luther was the one following Augustine way long ago, but Luther was the one who really made this the issue. This is the righteousness that is given to us. I doubt that that's what Paul is saying here. I think rather what Paul means is that the manifestation of God's righteousness is through Jesus Christ for all who believe. And I think this because of the very structure of this passage. In verses 21 and 22, he mentions the righteousness of God twice. In verses 25 and 26, you'll notice that he uses the exact same phrase again twice. In the three places where we have verbs, those verbs are linked to manifesting, exhibiting, showing, demonstrating, something along those lines. So in 21, it's has been manifested. In 25, it is to show. This was to show God's righteousness. In verse 26, it was to show his righteousness. I think that Paul wants us to be incredibly well balanced. And so there are two refrains, two verses at the beginning of the text that talk about his righteousness being manifested and two at the end talking about his righteousness being shown. It is about the display of God's righteousness, not the giving of his righteousness. And I think that that makes a pretty big deal. That righteousness is manifested by faith in Jesus Christ. And it is here, it is here, that I truly think we find the heart of the gospel. It isn't just in the fact that it's given to us, but that it is manifested in Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus and only in Jesus where the display or the manifestation, the full exhibition of the fullness of all of the dimensions of the righteousness of God can be found. So if you go through membership classes here, I use a quote from someone named Fred Sanders, and Fred rightly says that he has no idea where he got the quote. It just kind of floats out there. It, it, it's a quote that doesn't have a source. We don't know where it actually has come from, but it is good. And it is this, that the gospel is Trinitarian, and the Trinity is the gospel. So what do we mean by that? It is simply this, that it was only in Jesus that the full reality of God could be seen in this world. 
Remember, God's righteousness is showing that he is a kind judge. And there are events in this world that will talk about the, the kindness of God over you. When the sun rises in the morning, it is his mercies coming new again. When the rain falls on the just and the unjust, it is God demonstrating his kindness to you. You're going to go home, you're going to put on shorts that bear the American flag, and you are going to eat hot dogs and brats with your friends and relations. You're going to have a good time, and that is because God is kind to you. We might also get judgment. We might also see hurricanes and tornadoes and disease and famine. Eventually, we see death. We might see that people are judged in this world for their sins, but we never see those two things together. There is no one act in which you can say, God is judging me for my sins, and he is being exceptionally kind to me. He might be exceptionally kind to you while he judges other people for their sins, or he might be kind to other people and judge you for your sins, but where, where could there ever be a display of God's kindness to you in the judgment of your sins? You never get both completely united together. Where do we see sin judged and mercy given? Only in the work of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus' work for us that both highlights and places as central God's act toward us. His terrible fury, wrath, and anger towards sin, and the punishment that goes along with it, and at precisely the same time, His amazing love, kindness, mercy, and grace. God could only reveal these things through His Son on the cross, that God is both merciful and gracious, that he is the one who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, and at the same time refuses to clear the guilty. Therefore, he could only reveal his righteousness when he reveals himself in Jesus Christ on the cross, where God punishes our sin and is simultaneously at the same time incredibly and immensely gracious toward us. The revealing of who God is to those who have eyes to see it by faith in Christ is their salvation. We see in the God and flesh Jesus who God truly is and our salvation, not as separate realities, not as distinct things from one another, but as the very being of God who both hates sin and injustice and loves sinners and is merciful toward them. The beauty of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and the purpose of the gospel is not best seen in what we receive as long as all we think we're receiving is pardon from our sin. But it is best seen in how both the reality of God's being and our salvation are brought together. We often pray, I have already prayed, others have prayed today using this line, for our good and for your glory. Those are not two separate things. Our good is the glory of God. It is beholding God as he is. Beholding God as a God who is just and a God who is merciful is our salvation. But there is no good outside of the glory of God. For our good and for your glory is the gospel. Which takes us nicely to the third point, which is the glory of the gospel. 
this manifestation of God's righteousness and justice is indeed for our benefit. That is the purpose of that last clause when it says, it is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There are some who look at that and say, isn't Paul being redundant? He already said it's by faith or through faith, but now he's saying it's for all who believe. It's not redundant because Paul's making an emphatic statement that it's for all who believe. That it's not just for a certain subset. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew and know the law, or if you are a hardened sinner and a murderer who deserves nothing but his death. You are saved wholly through seeing and believing in the glory of God as it has been revealed in Jesus Christ. This, as Paul says, is because all have sinned. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There is no distinction between those who have striven with all of their might to please God and those who are far away, seeking nothing but their own pleasure in the world. Both are sinful. Both need the work of Jesus Christ because, as Paul said, all sinned. I hope that that's not a surprise to you. We've spent the better part of a month and a half talking about how all of you are sinners. Wicked people. Me as well. But what comes next, I think, is. This is one of the best-known verses in all of Scripture. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we say fall short of the glory of God, there's something of a description of sin there. It takes us back to chapter 1. That we, from all of creation and what God has made, we should know his eternal power and his divine nature. But instead, we have not given him glory and not given him thanks for who he is, but rather have turned aside to other creatures. In verse 23 of the first chapter, Paul says, We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. How stupid we are. People looking around on the earth saying, I wonder what God's glory looks like. I know. It looks like a cow. Let's build a statue of a cow. That's, that is glorious. We don't glorify God as we should. We don't hear God's word. We don't treasure God's word. We don't see it as good. We don't follow it. We don't give him the glory that he is due. That is the very nature of our sin. Yet, I think Paul means more than that. He doesn't just mean that we sin and fall short of the glory of God, but because of our sin, we will never achieve the glory that God has made us to have. We do not get the glory that God would have provided for us and meant for us to have. When we lessen God, when we domesticate him and make him small, when we exchange his glory for the glory of beasts on the earth and for worldly created things, We always lessen our own glory, for we are made in the image of God. Listen, you want a really good depiction of this? Ask an evolutionary biologist why it is that people love one another. Why do I love my children? They'll say, well, you've been programmed to love them. You get a little dopamine rush when they smile at you, and it really, you're just addicted to the drugs. You're, you're not actually curious about them, and, and you want to see them do well, but that's primarily just because of your own benefit, and, and you were just geared this way. It's simply a chemical reaction in your head. We are programmed to love our children, not because they are lovely, but simply because we dig the chemicals, man. Not because there is inherent value in that particular clump of cells. 
There is no glory in human beings. C.S. Lewis, on the other hand, spoke of humanity this way. Some of you probably have guessed what quote I'm going to use. It's a very famous quote, but it's, it's good. It serves the purpose. Lewis writes, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. Their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. There is a world, just a gaping chasm in between those two views of humanity. One sees us just as a more advanced, whatever that means, clump of cells. The other as beings with divine imprint. One as accidentally capable of certain things. The other as inherently glorious. The further from God we get, the less glorious we are. Our sin has not only robbed God of having ascribed to him the glory that he is due, but because we have acted in such a way, we diminish our own glory. This is the glory that we have lost. Not just God's glory, although it is that, but because we've lost that, we have lost our own. So now with a true and right understanding of God before us, as we see in Jesus the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature being in the image of the invisible God. We behold God as he truly is so that we can start to behold and become what we were always meant to be. This is, as it were, part of the healing that we have been mentioning and talking about that the gospel is meant to do. Christ both forgives our sins because he shows us the glory of a God who is merciful and loving and in seeing that God, in whose image we have been made, our glory in that very image is restored, and we are healed. That brings us to our fourth and last point today, the gift of the gospel. At the heart of this gospel, the central idea is that we have been given a gift. That gift is here, not the righteousness of God, but Paul says it is that we are justified by his grace. We are declared not guilty of our sin because of the grace of Jesus Christ. That is the gift that is given to us. But what precisely does it mean that this is a gift? Well, first we would say, quite clearly, it is undeserved. We don't deserve it. And listen, we, to be honest, we don't always think of presents this way. We don't think of gifts this way. Right? We have birthdays, and we have Christmas, and we expect gifts on Christmas. I'm appalled at the of gifts that my kids give me on Christmas. And I pray that one day they will be restored to a right relationship. We often say, you know, if we're invited to a birthday party, our kids are invited to a birthday, should we bring a gift? Because we know that society expects that. It is not something that we give freely. We might give it wantingly. But at the same time, there is an obligation that society places on us. 
But this gift cannot be conceived of in that way. God gives us this gift wholly through his magnanimous nature. Although we must have and must be shown the full dimension of his righteousness to save us, if he were to save us, we are right to remember that his glory would still be intact. His joy would still be complete. His mercy still unmatched if he had chosen never to act at all. It is a completely and totally free gift given by God. It cannot be bought. It cannot be repaid. It cannot be earned. And it certainly is not owed to us. So we press nothing upon anyone who would receive it. We don't look at them as Elijah looked at Naaman and said, go wash seven times in the Jordan and you'll be cleansed. We don't tell sinners to demonstrate the worthiness of their gift, of the gift through their good deeds. We don't ask for the right words. We don't ask for the right prayers. We don't ask for the right deeds before the gift is given to them. We simply tell them and we simply tell you what the Lord has spoken in his word. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. There is none too good for this gift that they are above the need of it. Nor is there any too rancid, too distasteful to God, too vile or evil or wicked or wretched that the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ cannot reach you. For it is a gift that is unmerited and undeserving. A hymn we often sing, Come Ye Sinners, makes that clear. Let not conscience make you linger nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. First, this is a gift because it is wholly free, but second, it must be received. When given a present, we actually have to, you know, take it from people to make it ours. If you say, hey, I've got a gift for you, but I never actually go out to your car and grab it and unwrap it and use it, it's not a gift that I actually have. It's a possibility, but it's not actually mine. Other gifts are received in different ways. If someone sends you an email saying, hey, you've got $30 worth of Amazon credit, you've got to actually click on redeem to get it. It's sitting in your email, does you no good. If someone offers to help you when you need it, that is only as good as you saying, yes, I will accept that help. The gift only becomes a true gift when it's received. So how then do we receive this great gift of justification in Jesus Christ? How do we grab hold of it, as it were, and open it and enjoy it? Scripture is clear. You believe. You trust in the work of Jesus Christ. These passages, this particular passage, is just replete with appeals to faith and to believing in Christ. We only truly see God's glory here when we see Jesus through the eyes of faith. Through the eyes of history, through the eyes of psychology, through the eyes of a number of different worldly things, we can look at the cross of Jesus Christ and see a man who might be wrongly crucified, but just see a man who is there crucified and see nothing else. See an act in history. But with faith... We don't just see an act of history. We see the very glory of God, his fierce hatred of sin, and his just as fierce love of sinners. 
when we trust that Jesus is showing us God, showing us mercy, paying for our sins, then and only then do we truly receive the gift that he has given to us. And friends, the gift of Jesus Christ is the gift of God himself, given for us and our behalf, that we might be forgiven and healed of our sins. This gift is pure. It is untainted. It comes without any strings and is powerful to work on even the most hardened of sinners. Moreover, this gift is like one of those really annoying infomercials that simply promises you more and more and more, not one knife, not two knives, not three knives. But it continually gives to us. It keeps getting better. For the good news is not just that sinners can come and find salvation, but the good news is a continual, ever-abounding, and ever-increasing gift. Because it's not just about our pardon, it's about knowing and beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The more glory we see in Jesus, the more we taste of his great mercy, the more we are both satisfied and yet long for more. And even as both of these are paradoxically increasing, we know that the treasury of God's goodness and grace and mercy and glory is infinite and boundless and immeasurable. We can drink of it forever. If you do not know him, see him in faith today. Come and drink from the fount of all good things, holy and completely without price, if you know him. Drink deeply from the cup of his mercy and grace this morning. Let us pray. Father, what ineffable grace and mercy you have shown us in Jesus Christ. For we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And yet, in him you bring us home. Give us eyes of faith to see in Jesus your glory and our salvation. Not as two unrelated things, but as a single gift that surpasses all else in worth, in power, in glory, and in might, that your name might be praised forever. We ask this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.